is Thursday, October 24th. This is Kurt Kovac. It's been a while since we've recorded a podcast for Politics NC, uh, but today we're going to start something a little different, and I am here in downtown Raleigh in person with uh, Mr. Gary Pierce. Gary, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Kurt. It's be exciting. It's actually not my first podcast. I've done one before. Okay, so you're you're not <laughs> wet behind the ears. Um, so this this might be the start of a series where we have Gary and uh, just talk about various things in North Carolina politics, maybe have some other people come on and get their perspectives. But I thought it would make sense to start today sort of covering prefatory matters with you, Gary. So uh, right. I think your your biggest client historically has been Governor Hunt, and I thought you could give us a brief history of, of your work in North Carolina politics and maybe particularly with uh, Governor Hunt. Okay. Well, actually, that was my start in politics. That was a good one. I, I was lucky. I, I started out my career. I was at the News and Observer. I was a reporter and editor. And I met uh, Jim Hunt when he was lieutenant governor, covered him in the legislature. And when you know he what year that might have been? Around? That was 1975. Okay. And then when he first ran for governor in 1976, he offered me a job as his press secretary. And I was ready to do something different, and I wasn't encumbered. I was young. I was 26 years old. I said, well, this will be fun for a year. And and here I am, you know, 43 years later, and I, people ask me how long I worked for Jim Hunt, and I say, well, 43 years and counting so far. So how was the transition for you from um, the NNO into politics? I know I think there's a little bit of back and forth in terms of, you know, people might be uh, journalists for a while and that those skills lend themselves into maybe a communications type role. But did you find the transition easy or, and also maybe uh, how were things different than when you got your start in 76 versus how they are, I think, drastically changed today? Well, in a lot of ways, they hadn't changed that much. I mean, we think they have, you know, technologically, it's a total, total change. Yeah. Yeah. But, but, you know, the basic principles are the same and I didn't find it that hard. I, I had always liked politics. I wanted to be in politics. I, the reason I switched was I got tired of being outside the room trying to find out what happened. I wanted to be in the room making things happen. And so I got the chance to do that. But it was a great advantage because I understood media. I understood reporters' jobs and what they had to do. Um, I mean, obviously, reporting, journalism has fundamentally changed in a lot of ways. Politics has changed in a lot of ways. But I think their basic principles that still hold. So, obviously, the way people campaign and the way elections work have changed a little bit over the years. Uh, how how have you seen North Carolina politics generally change from the mid seventies to today? Well, the biggest change has been the rise of the Republican Party. Um, I mean, we were still a, even though Jesse Helms and Jim Holzhouse are both Republicans, had been elected in nineteen seventy two. It was still a predominantly Democratic state. That's been a total change. But, you know, people today talk about how conservative the legislature is and they attack the Republicans there. Well, we had the same problem when Jim Hunt was governor. It's just that the conservatives were Democrats, you know. But they tended to be very conservative rural Democrats who are not that different from Republicans today. So a lot of sort of the same fights, you know, over whether well, we cut taxes for business or do we raise teacher pay. Right. It's been going on forever. The more things change, I guess. Yeah, stay the absolutely. Same. Um, well, do you think that the, the Democratic Party has been changing in the past decade or so, trying to uh, gain back some prominence in the state? Or do you think maybe uh, just the voters 
appetites have shifted away from one party rule and the Democrats are kind of basically where they were like 2010 when they lost power. Well, you know, we had one bad election, 2010, and that was a bad, it was a year ending in zero. It was a bad year to have a flame out because uh, we're still paying the the price today. But you know, the most important thing in politics in the South and in North Carolina is always race. It's always been about race. Um, You go back to 1950, Willis Smith and Frank Porter Graham, and 1984, Jim Hunt and Jesse Helms, and still today, race is at the bottom of everything, and that, that never changes. Um, well, could you talk about that Senate race between Jesse Helms and uh, uh, Governor Hunt? Because I know a lot of times um, when uh, Thomas writes uh, for Politics NC, we always talk about, at least for U.S. senators, if your name isn't Jesse Helms or Richard Burry, you're one term. And so we'll see if we'll put that to the test with uh, Tom Tillis in 2020. But generally speaking, North Carolina uh, voters don't love to reelect their senators. So uh, what was it about Jesse Helms that gave him such staying power? And is, was that the only race Governor Hunt ever lost? It was the only one he lost, so yeah. And that's the only one anybody ever wants to ask me about is the <laughs> one we lost. You know. But um, well, there were a couple of things about Helms. Number one, he was a master of race. I mean, that's what he built his his entire career on, starting when he was at WREL doing the editorials. And second, he had built, and it, he didn't do it, it was actually Tom Ellis, built the most um, modern and effective political machine that the state and country have ever seen. That was a congressional club back in the 70s and 80s. And they pioneered two things, direct mail fundraising all over the country. So they had huge amounts of money. And second, negative television ads. They were the masters at both. And when we ran in 84, we were nothing like at their level in terms of uh, campaign methods. Uh, We also, we had a bad case of calendar that year because Ronald Reagan was beating Walter Mondale by some 20-some points here. And we lost to Helms by about three points. And and, But, you know, again, race was it. We did a, a poll after the election try to figure out exactly what happened, why Hunt had lost. And the the issue that correlated best with how people voted, almost 100%, was how they felt about the Martin Luther King holiday, which, believe it or not, today, Helms campaigned against, filibustered against on the Senate floor, and and basically made a, a central issue in that campaign. And it hurt us a lot. Well, I remember when I worked uh, on a campaign in Kings Mountain, and uh, I think you might uh, know him, but uh, Jack Hunt oh, was yeah, sure. uh, in the house forever. So his, Not related, but very right, close right. to Jim Same Hunt. last name, though. Yeah. I, know, I know they're friendly. Uh, but he uh, told me about uh, his family still out there and prominent in Kings Mountain. Uh, he, he asked, or I had asked him about, um, you know, his campaigns and, and things, and he had one big election that he had lost as he was uh, running for Congress, and uh, he lost that race. And I think this might have been the 80s. But I think it, he had said that one of the constituents told him, is like, Jack, we want Democrats in Raleigh, but Republicans in, in Washington. So uh, there definitely was that idea where people could easily split tickets, and there wasn't like cognitive dissonance like you might think today with a split ticket. But was there a point after which... At least you saw that it really did move to where, you know, the Republicans were the conservatives because we still have issues today. I think people will look at polls or uh, 
turnout numbers and see, well, oh, there's so many Democrats, but a lot of those Democrats are people that voted for Jesse Helms and who are never changing their registrations. So, right. I mean, is there a clear point after which you think it really started diverging where the conservative Democrats kind of left the party, even if they didn't change registration? Well, of course, it really started in 64 when Lyndon Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act and later the Voting Rights Act. And, and conservative Democrats began certainly voting and then later re-registering as, as Republicans. So it really happened through the 70s and 80s. I think by the time Hunt ran for governor the third time in 1992, it was pretty solidified. And, and the, the votes started coming together. I mean, there wasn't much of a gap between vote for governor, for senator, for president. And now it's almost 100% down the line. And right. so politics has really become nationalized. You know, when Hunt ran against Helms, that was one of the differences. If they'd been running against each other for governor, Hunt would have won. It was partly because of his personality. He is a compromiser. He sort of tries to seek the, seek the middle, whereas Helms was always an ideologue on one side. You can't really govern effectively as a governor, as an ideologue. But when you're one member of the Senate yeah. trying to make a statement, take a stand, as it will, that's an easy thing to do. Well, to that point, uh, I know 2016, we had a uh, extremely tight gubernatorial race. Uh, and I think a lot of people, because it was so tight, they got to pick and choose the reasons why they thought maybe Roy Cooper was able to win, even in a year where Democrats didn't do great statewide, at least presidential, Senate. Um, do you have any insight, do you think, uh, in that election? I think a lot of people might want to say it was HB2 that pushed him over the edge, and I think just as many people might say it was about toll roads near Charlotte that pushed him over the edge. Do you have any insight into that, what you think might have made the difference for Roy Cooper in 16? And then um, moving from that, what do you think his odds are in 2020? Because I think, to your point, he, he has had to be a pretty pragmatic right. insofar as it's possible with you know Republican legislature uh, governor. I mean, I think there were two factors in Cooper winning last time. One is that he was a good candidate with a good campaign, and the other, and this is the best thing to have in politics, he had an inept opponent who ran an inept campaign. Um, I mean, McCrory was a disaster as a governor. He he was outraged by Cooper. I mean, it, how does an incumbent governor, with sort of all the power and connections and everything you have, get outraged financially? by a challenger. But Cooper did do that. And Cooper is, you know, is an extraordinarily good politician. He's really in tune with North Carolina. Over the years, and he'd had a lot of years to do it, he'd built a great team around him. McCrory never did that. McCrory never had a good team of people around him. So Cooper was able to overcome, I think, um, Trump won here by a little less than four points. And what was interesting is toward the end, most of the polls were saying Cooper was going to win by four points and Trump and Hillary were going to be basically dead even. Well, it didn't happen. You know, I mean, whether it was Trump turnout or weak Democratic turnout, Trump won by four, and sure enough, Roy Cooper was able to make up a bit, but just barely, four-point yeah. margin. So, I mean, part of the problem, and when I talk to people who want to run for office next year, I tell them, you know, your biggest challenge is you don't really control your own fate. What happens in the presidential race is going to be, you know, 90-plus percent deciding what happens to you, and that's totally out of your control. Uh, yeah, that is true. Um, well, another thought in that vein is we know 
for the U.S. Senate race next year that Tom Tillis, as an incumbent, really didn't have great fundraising numbers. I know uh, Cal uh, Cunningham on the Democratic side is the sort of front runner, uh, at least uh, financially. And Tom Tillis only raised maybe $200,000 more than him. I think it was like 1.3 to 1.1. So does that indicate to you weakness for that incumbent, for Tom Tillis as a sitting senator? I, you know, I think Tillis has a lot of weaknesses. I don't think money is going to be one of them. I mean, for one thing, it'll be just like the last two Senate races. The great bulk of the money is going to be spent by independent groups, not by the campaigns. And because North Carolina is going to be one of, I don't know, what, four or five really key yeah. states in a Senate race, the Democrats think they can flip a seat, it's going to be really, really expensive. And there is there's one thing you can be sure of in this world. There is no shortage of national Republican money in a race like that. Now, Democrats do pretty good at keeping up, but I don't think money is going to be a problem. I think really Tillis's problem may be getting through the primary. Well, I know he does have a primary opponent, Tucker Garland, for whom money is also no object. Do you think there really is a legitimate chance that Tucker can beat uh, Tom Tillis, or is it more that he's just going to be a thorn in his side that really won't have any issues sticking around as long as he wants to. The, the best thing, I don't know anything at all about Garland Tucker. I know one thing about his campaign, and that's that Carter Wren is running it. And I've known Carter for a long, long time. Right. We've been on the opposite side in 84 and other races. We actually work together on some things, not campaigns, obviously. We disagree too much. But there is almost no one in politics whose skills and abilities I respect more than, than Carter's. And he's won a lot of Senate races over incumbents. So I would not underestimate Garland Tucker. Well, and it very well could be a perfect storm. I know uh, consistently Tom Tillis is the worst polling senator in the nation in terms of within his own party. You know, I don't think he commands a majority support. Now, I don't know if that means they're going to vote for a challenger, but I think, you know, as much money as can pour in from out of state if the voters just don't like you, that, you know, it, it can't go uh, only so far. Uh, I guess that does raise another point. Uh, this is more recent, but how much has Citizens United, for example, changed politics in the sense that you do have an independent expenditure group? So it doesn't matter how much money Tom Tillis raises because anybody in the nation can donate unlimited money to, you know, an IE group that spends whatever they want on his race, does that change the dynamics of the race a lot, or does it just make everything um, way more expensive? I don't know that it changes dynamics. Um, it does make everything more expensive, um, and and you, to some extent you lose control because you don't know what an independent group would do. But, I mean, these groups have all figured out ways to coordinate within the laws that prohibit coordination. It's I all mean, really great. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a gray area, and there are a thousand ways to get around it. I mean, what a lot of campaigns will do is they'll just post their strategy on an obscure website somewhere so the independent groups can get it. Now, occasionally you have an independent group that does something that hurts a candidate. I mean, we saw that in a city council race, in a district race here, where an independent group did a mailer that um, ended up hurting a candidate who had nothing to do with it. So, you know, it can be a factor in a race like that, but uh, I don't, I mean, it, it's all so much about money now. But campaigns have always been about two things, money and message, you know. And, and the money question is how do you 
most effectively spends your money to get the message to the right people. Well, looking ahead now uh, with as much foresight as you can muster, do you have any uh, big predictions for 2020 North Carolina politics? Maybe not outcomes because that's always hard, but is there anything you're going to watch in particular next year that might uh, be of interest to other people? Um, I th- you know, I hate to sound obvious, but I mean, I'm, I, I think the biggest factor is going to be who the Democrats nominate for president. Do they have a candidate who can at least keep it competitive here? If, if we end up with a candidate, and I'm not going to say who that may or may not be because it's hard to predict now, but somebody who loses North Carolina by six or eight points, it's going to be really hard even for Roy Cooper and for Josh Stein and whoever the Senate candidate is and people down the way to um, to compete. If we get a, a Democratic candidate like an Obama who can win here and it would be a narrow win, that's a huge thing because most of our statewide candidates are going to run, you know, the good ones are going to run two, four, six points ahead of the national ticket. And, and that would be a great year for us. Okay, well, I think we can leave it at that, and hopefully we can get together soon to talk about something else that's a bit more pressing in North Carolina politics, maybe even get Thomas on the phone and see what he has to say about it. But uh, thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule to sit here with me and, and talk about this for a while. Always enjoy talking about politics.